As most of you know, we've been in a sermon series in the book of Ezekiel. We are taking a bit of a, a break from that, and I would direct you to go to Ephesians uh, chapter, excuse me, Philippians chapter 3. I promise I know what I'm preaching on. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3. I've actually been making that mistake all morning. But Philippians chapter 3. It'll be on the screen here for you. I'll be reading from the ESV, which is just a bit different from the New King James that's in the pew. Uh, But uh, I trust you'll be able to to track along very well. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes to the church in a city called Philippi, and this is what he tells them. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, thank you, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and so we say, thanks be to God. So, you just heard me mention the resurrection of the dead. That's what we're here to talk about this morning, isn't it? What is the resurrection? It is the distinctly Christian doctrine and belief that the three days dead body of Jesus was resurrected and brought back to life about 2,000 years ago. This is, in many ways, the central article of our faith. From this fundamental, historical, and spiritual reality, everything else flows. Jesus rose from the dead in fulfillment of the words of the Old Testament prophets and the songs of the psalmists and his own confident pronouncements. And so this message carries that very divine authority. As far as the defense of the historical reality goes... The material on that is both plentiful and well-known, and I won't attempt to summarize it here. I honestly think that would be cheapening it a bit. I think one of the better cases for it is laid out in a chapter of a book called The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. What that chapter does on the resurrection essentially condenses lots and lots and lots and lots of, uh, of, of research and publishing that's been done on this to, uh, to a, a short chapter. 
Uh, that was one of the books that was very helpful to me when I was questioning my own faith some years ago. That chapter on the resurrection honestly left me in a place where I could acknowledge that if I was going to reject the resurrection of Jesus, the burden of proof was on me to do so and to explain why. The resurrection was not guilty until Brian Rhodes proved it innocent. That was the realization that I came to in reading that book. I had to make the better case. I am less interested in making that kind of a defense of the doctrine, though I'm happy to do it at another time perhaps. I'm more interested in talking about what this doctrine does to people who know it and confess it and treasure it. Our passage this morning, as I said, is from the Apostle Paul, who you might be familiar with him, the story of Saul of Tarsus, who had quite the conversion experience, was knocked to the ground and blinded. And then as the Apostle Paul, uh, maybe a name change, more likely Saul was his name when interacting with uh, Jewish uh, uh, audiences and groups. And Paul is what he was called and known by when he interacted with Greek-speaking groups. Uh, More likely that's the reason for the distinction in the names. But Paul had every reason. In fact, I hope you heard it in our text. He called himself a persecutor of the church before he came to know Jesus. If you'll look at verses 1 through 3 with me again. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, because he's repeating himself, and is safe for you. Oh my, how we need repetition. Then he gets quite brutal. Look out for the dogs. That is as gravelly and sharp an insult as it is meant to sound. Look out for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. What's he talking about? Next verse. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is responding to a false teaching that in a different form still exists today, by the way, that you have to be a certain quality of person with a certain set of accomplishments before you can be a Christian. In this case, the teaching was that you had to undergo the ceremonial rite of circumcision before you could become a real legitimate Christian. Paul talks more about this in Galatians, if you're curious, saving some of the strongest and harshest language we will ever hear from the Apostle for the false teaching and those who teach it. The false teaching that you are saved and welcomed into this new covenant by anything but the grace, anything beyond the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ by faith alone in His death and resurrection. If you look at verses 4 through 6, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. So if you're going to put your confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I'm a great model for that. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, read that as confidence in accomplishments. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, you want to know my zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Quite an impressive list. Paul basically here in verse 4 and following makes an interesting move. He basically says, if anyone could get into Christianity by being the right sort of person, if that's how this works, 
having the right sort of attitude, the right kind of education, having the right political opinions, coming from the right family, by being on the right side of history, maybe a modern way of doing it. If that's what it takes to be good enough before God, Paul says, I've got all of you beat. He's boasting about his background. He is saying, if the way our faith works is that you have to be a certain quality of individual to get in. Have a look at my resume then, because I'm pretty sure I outdo all of you. Have you ever known someone who, as best you can tell, is the best at what they do? And just just the the glory of God's uh, uh, gifting and, and talent that he's poured into them, and they're probably, in many cases, their work, and, uh, and, and education, and over many, many years perhaps, developing expertise, it just shines through in their work. And maybe they're not great at everything, but man, when you put them in their element, with the tools that they're familiar with, and you give them a task in their area of mastery, they just shine. And if you know those people someone like that, you know it's not pride when they say, I know what I'm doing. Right? So if you're asking somebody to, to work on your, say, your house, for instance, and they have clearly demonstrated that they have mastery of what it takes to do that, and they say, I know what I'm doing, that's not pride or bragging. That's just them stating reality. If they had some kind of false humility about it, you wouldn't be impressed. You'd probably just kind of roll your eyes because you're dealing with a liar. I mean, if you know someone who can take wood and nails and glue, perhaps, and paint and make something glorious, looking at you, and then you hear them talk, oh, I, I barely know what I'm doing, right? I just throw a hammer and stuff comes out okay. <laughs> you, you wouldn't be impressed. If you're their friend, you wouldn't even tolerate that. So when they say, I know what I'm doing, you're just ready to say, Clearly you do. Yes and amen. That's kind of what Paul is doing here. If it were possible for someone to be a master craftsman in the area of spiritual and intellectual accomplishment, Paul was it. He wasn't bragging. He was simply acknowledging the reality. But then he pulls the rug out. Look at verse 7. Whatever gain I had... I counted his loss for the sake of knowing Christ, having just listed all of his gains. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He basically says, he's come to know something. Or rather, he's come to know someone that takes all of the glories of his resume, which are real glories. I mean, except maybe for the persecution of the church thing, right? And in the different light of the reality of Jesus, that becomes sin. But certainly doesn't lead you to question his religious zeal. So he takes all the glories of his resume, which are basically real, true glories, and he says they're rubbish. It makes, Jesus Christ makes it look like garbage. In fact, I don't want to be impolite in church 
But the Greek word that gets translated rubbish here is, let's just say, a very gentle translation. The word in Greek is skubalon. And it was a first century way of saying poop. I think you get the picture. I counted all of these things as bad word. Okay? And we immediately begin to get a sense that this is not false modesty. This is not Paul saying, oh, you know, I mean, yeah, there's my resume. Add it all up and add it to $4.50 and that'll get you a cup of coffee at your local Philippian Starbucks. No, he's actually saying that he has found something so life-changing and transformative, so identity-altering, direction of life orientation-altering, so powerfully renovating that he takes his resume with all of its real sparkle and shine for which he had given up the best years and vigor of his youth and says, I've come to realize it is toilet paper by comparison. What had happened to Paul? The reality of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Because the reality of the resurrection changes everything. Changes everything. Changes, by the way, how you understand you. As we can see here, how you understand your accomplishments, your values, your virtues, your treasures, your relationships, your life goals, your, your comforts, your personality. Everything. Because here's what Paul had in common with every single one of his original readers in Philippi about 2,000 years ago and what he has in common with you and me today. He wanted his life to mean something. He wanted to make something of his life. We all desire to make something of our lives. It's just a question of how. There are lots of possibilities. You can make something of your life with money. Money will certainly give you a lot of resources to do a lot of things, to accomplish a lot of things, to enjoy a lot of things. You can make something of your life with knowledge and study and education. You can become an expert in a field that's really important to you and really gets you excited and really stirs your soul. You can learn a lot of things, for example, about theology. And that, that, will do, uh, that will go a long way in strengthening your love for God and your delight in God. Or you can learn uh, a lot of things about theology and religion in order to distance yourself from God. When I was in a postgraduate program in, uh, in Edinburgh uh, some years ago, I was surprised at how many of my peers came from what I would call overly legalistic and harsh backgrounds. And they weren't believers. And they were there to get their PhD in New Testament studies. Figure that out for me. It took me a while to figure it out. What it is, is you've got these 20 and 30-somethings studying to get their PhD in some sense, like to finally prove mommy and daddy wrong. I don't want to say that's what all of it was, but it was there for some, some of them. And that's, you can learn a lot of theology and Bible information with the very purpose of distancing yourself from God. I mean, or just, oh, God save us. Just type religion into Google. You'll get all kinds of nonsense. 
You can make something of your life with discernment. There's another one. I don't mean the good kind of discernment where you uh, sort of have uh, uh, the ability to discern between good and evil. That's, that's, a, that's a good thing. Discernment is not the same as knowledge as I'm talking about it, though. It is the way discernment gets wrongly used is what I'm talking about is not the ability to see everything, but the ability to see beyond everything, right? To see through all the smoke and mirrors and curtains and lies and to have everyone figured out. It's a bit different from the idolatry of knowledge, which I just talked about. That's, that's knowing a lot of things so you can be maybe prepared to answer any question or challenge or maybe objection. The idolatry of discernment, and maybe there's a better word that I'm not finding there, but what I'm going to call the idolatry of discernment is not about being the smartest person in the room. It's about being the most enlightened keeper of the secret knowledge in the room. It's about being the most unfoolable person in a room full of fools by your own judgment. And those are just three significant idols I grabbed off the top of my head while I was making this sermon. There's a bunch more. But the resurrection means that compared to knowing Jesus Christ, which is what Paul says, even if you actually find all you are looking for behind the promises of the idols of the world, you would still, if you actually came to grips with the resurrection of Jesus, would call it scubala. And it's not hard to imagine, by the way, because the thing about the idols of the world is that, I mean, Paul's telling us here, like, you, you put them in light of the glory of Christ, no contest. Fair enough, that's true, and we, we preach it and we proclaim it. But look, even if you're not a Christian, you know that the idols of the world start to tarnish if you just look at them too long. So, so the idol of money that calls you and tempts you to trust in it that everything's going to be okay as long as you have enough of it. And maybe you expect me to say, well, somebody always has more, you know? And that's, that's true. Somebody always has more money or, or possessions, mammon, whatever, than, than you do. But also, not just somebody has more, it could all be gone tomorrow. There's a little thing called inflation, right? Or recession, or a war that might be 9,000 miles away, but can do some pretty terrible things to economies beyond its borders. Knowledge. Okay, let's start in the same place. Somebody knows more than you. Yeah, fair enough. There's always somebody smarter in the room that knows more than you. How about this? There's somebody that knows more than you, that's studied more than you, that's worked harder than you at knowledge, and they think you're wrong about everything. How about that? How's that? That just weakens that idol, doesn't it? When you realize, oh, there's somebody who knows more than me and thinks I'm wrong. The idol of discernment. If you think you have everybody around you figured out, you are probably a very lonely person. It is lonely being the only enlightened one in the room. But also the bad news is very few people enjoy being around you because you believe you have them and everyone else figured out. And when you think that way all the time, it's hard to have substantive, meaningful friendships because you don't see people, you just see through them. And it gets tiring for the people around you. Oh, good for you. You've got it all figured out. You've got your generation figured out. You've got the younger generation figured out. You've got the older generation figured out. 
You got boomers and Gen Xers figured out. You got millennials and Gen Z and whatever comes after them figured out. You have white-collar people figured out. You have blue-collar people figured out. You have white people figured out. You have black people figured out. You have all of ancient history, uh, Christianity maybe, figured out. You have all the conspiracies figured out. You have your government figured out. You have the right figured out. You have the left figured out. Because you're just so perceptive. But your friends are few. Or maybe your wife hates you. Or maybe your kids despise you. It's actually pretty common once that idolatry takes root. So is it worth it? Even before we get to the glories of the resurrection, which makes everything else look like Scubalon by comparison. My point is that even just with, with natural revelation, the idols of this world lose their shine if you look long enough. What Paul has done here is that he's listed these things that he's got some reason to be proud of. He had made it. He got the certifications. He's the spiritual master craftsman with the five-star reviews on Google. Spiritually speaking, he is the thriving success story. And he calls it loss. Because he had gained something that reduced it to loss. So, walk with me on that. What if there were something in this world that if you encountered it, it would make everything you think you had thought you had built for yourself seem like scubalon by comparison? For some, that sounds terrifying because what you have called gain is all you have. You've built your whole reputation around it, your whole identity around it your whole concept of strength and security around it, your whole personality around it, the meaning and significance of life around it, your pride around it, and the thought that something could threaten this tower of Babel that you have built terrifies you. And if you are honest, you would be ready to kill a man who would dare threaten all of that. And you understand now Good Friday just a bit better. For others, it sounds wonderful. The thought that you could actually find rest for your soul from the anxiety-inducing grind of significance hunting. It's so inviting that you are afraid to ask for it, afraid to hope for it. So what is it? Join me back at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. That I may, I'm going to backtrack just a little. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Do you notice the passive language? Not I track down Christ. Not I earn Christ. I become good enough for Christ. Rather, I am found. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not having a righteousness of my own, a peace of my own, a custom-built security of my own, a strength of my own that comes from the law or my education or my money or my knowledge or my discernment or my work or my accomplishments or my political opinions. 
but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on me. Oh wait, no. That depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. What changed everything for Paul? Verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul was a changed man because he knew Jesus Christ. And he and 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 he knew the power of his resurrection. In your mind, kind of put a separation between those two for a moment. That I may know Christ, check, and the power of his resurrection, check. It is possible to have an idea of the first, by the way, and not know the second. Some of you have a knowledge of Christ, a concept of Jesus, but you still do not know the power of his resurrection. You don't, because you're still enslaved to your resume. You're still enslaved to your desire for security, significance, hope, and happiness found in these things. Seven verses later, by the way, we're not getting to it this morning, but seven verses after verse 10, Paul will have the seeming audacity to tell his readers, imitate me, Philippians. Imitate my way of life and the life of the leaders you've got there and follow their example. Grace Presbyterian Church, how many of you would be ready to say to an unbeliever or a baby Christian, if you want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, come live with me for a couple of weeks and see if you cannot tell what a difference Jesus makes. I dare you. Others of you might be, might be tempted to keep Christ at a distance because you know that to know him and the power of his resurrection would cost you. Might cost you a lifestyle. Might cost you your own personally constructed sense of identity. Might cost you your pride and autonomy. You might have to say, all those hours I spent listening to God haters on my phone might have been something of a waste. And you might have to say things like, or you might have to stop saying things like, well, I'm fine with Jesus, he's okay, but you know, I just can't be a part of Christianity because the church has a lot of problems, you know? You're fine with Jesus. Okay, which Jesus? Is it the version you saw on The Chosen? Oh. Do you know Him? Do you know Him and the power of His resurrection? Well, but I can't stand the church. The church has a lot of problems. I'm a pastor. You don't think I know that? (laughs) More importantly, do you know Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection? Have you had to look at all the vain things that charm you most? And have you found the beauty there, the beauty of Christ, to be more compelling? That when compared with all the treasures of this world that you've got, your soul wells up to say, Scubalon. It's easy to bluster about admiration for Jesus. Let me say that again. It's easy to bluster about admiration for Jesus while keeping him quite far from you? Do you know him and the power of his resurrection? Have you experienced his love? Yeah? Good. Have you experienced his correction? He does both. 
Because all Christians come to know both. Paul says he knows Christ and the power of his resurrection. When we know Christ, we are dealing with a person. A person worthy of worship. Not a concept useful for dissection. The power of his resurrection the very divine power that took his dead body and raised it up. This is saying the same power that raised Jesus from the dead can come into my dead soul that is so desperately clinging to my shiny resume and call me out of that death and raise me to new life. And so, look at the deadness of your life. We'll start there. Have the courage to wonder about it and maybe even despise it. Look at the obsession with money, protection, security. How is that ever going to be turned into courage? Look at the anger and bitterness that rips up your heart, that rips up your marriage, and that rips up your friendships. How on earth is that going to be turned into forgiveness? Look at the insecurity that keeps you awake at night. How is that going to be turned into confidence and hope and joy? Look at the self-centeredness that pervades your decisions and your easily offended heart. How's that going to be turned into compassion and patience and generosity? How? The way it is is that Jesus Christ will have all of you then or he will have nothing. And that's a great hope because that means he can take all those things I just listed and raise you to life. You should tremble if you have a knowledge of Christ and maybe even a willingness to say that you acknowledge the historical reality, but your constant, day-to-day, unchanging agenda is your own personal success and protection. That you go to God when you want to. Paul says a Christian is somebody who's kind of so turned around in that sense that all the personal success is caught up in knowing Him and the power of His resurrection. Everything else comes second. That'd be a nice way to put it. Paul, one of the most accomplished men who ever lived, said it was all scubalon when compared with knowing Christ and the power of His resurrection. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know the power of his resurrection? Do you want to, we bid you, come and welcome to Jesus Christ? Amen.